Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. So help you God. I do. Thank you. The Prime Minister's security advisor takes the stand. We'll hear what Jody Thomas had to say to the Rouleau inquiry and why she believed the Emergencies Act was needed. Also... Everything we discuss is then leaked to the paper that's not appropriate. More fallout from this exchange between the Prime Minister and China's President. What it says about Xi Jinping and the impact it could have on Canada-China relations. Our strategist panel will weigh in. And... We must keep 1.5 degrees Celsius within reach. As COP27 enters its final stretch, we'll speak with Canada's Minister of the Environment and Climate Change. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Jody Thomas is a name with which many Canadians may be unfamiliar, but she does hold an important role. She is the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor. During last winter's convoy protest, she determined protester actions constituted a threat to democracy and to the rule of law. And today, at the Emergencies Act inquiry, she implied her conclusions were guided in part by doubt in the RCMP. Take a listen. There is no evidence that there was a plan. And as I noted, we had been told there was a plan multiple times. When you say no evidence, what kind of evidence would you have expected to see? Um, We would expect some level of assurance from the RCMP that the people were in place, it was executable. We don't expect to see details, that's policing. But we needed a level of assurance that yes, finally, um, the officers needed, the equipment needed, the executable strategic and tactical plan was there. The same thing uh, that had been asked for several days. Um, we didn't have any evidence or assurance that that was in fact the, where we were. Well, with more, let's bring in CPAC's Martin Stringer as he's been covering the story for us today. So, so Martin, very interesting to, to hear a woman that holds such an important role in terms of advising the Prime Minister. Talk to us a bit more about what stood out in her testimony. Well, I mean, if we hear that exchange, it's quite extraordinary, really, because as you as you suggested and as the clip seemed to suggest, there you have the advisor to the Prime Minister laying the the blame or at least the rationale for invoking the Emergencies Act, the necessity for the Emergencies Act, at the feet of RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. We remember this week, earlier this week, Brenda Lucky, the Commissioner, had said that she regretted on the 13th of February, the day before the Trudeau government invoked the Emergencies Act, she said she regretted not having explicitly brought up the fact that the Ottawa police and the RCMP had finally worked out a plan to clear the protesters from downtown Ottawa. But Brenda Lucky also said that she thought that the that the uh, the ministers and the federal government understood that things were being worked on. Brenda Lockie also said that she was of the opinion that all of the tools had not been used, the tools in their toolbox, if you will, had not been used by police forces before invoking the act. Mm-hmm. Not yet used, uh, although it's interesting because uh, as we hear essentially the, the doubts that uh, Ms. Thomas had in the RCMP, there was that conclusion, and this is not so much in testimony, testimony but in documents with the commission in in which she expressed 
her belief that there was a national emergency. Talk to us about what was mm -hmm. said on that front. Well, that was also extraordinary. And it's one of the things, uh, as you mentioned, since we saw those documents, uh, there was a, the, the fact how uh, Jody Thomas, the national security advisor, how she came to the conclusion that the occupation of downtown Ottawa was a national security threat. On the day that the act was invoked on February 14th, that very day was the day that Jody Thomas sent an email uh, to the RCMP asking for a threat assessment. And in fact, she went over the head of some managers to send a direct email the day of saying, I need an urgent threat assessment. And in the email that accompanied that request, she actually said that she considered that there was a threat to democracy and a threat to uh, security uh, that's constituted by these protesters. So she seemed to even presuppose the answer. She was asked by counsel, by the Commission counsel, what about the timing, about why do that? And she said, well, at that point, we're invoking the Emergencies Act, we needed a rationale, we needed an explanation, we needed a, a, a further, maybe, she didn't say justification, but she wanted more details about the nature of the threat, but still left a lot of people scratching their heads. Why would you ask that on the day that you've already invoked the Emergencies Act? The irony, too, was that we found out from testimony today that that threat assessment actually ended up never being provided to her, and she said that the events uh, just overtook things. Overtook things, and again, the question, why ask it the same day rather than earlier before the act is actually invoked? And of course, that's a line of questioning that we're gonna be following very closely in the days ahead. But you know, before we wrap up uh, what we heard today, we should also point out the fact that it was not just Ms. Thomas that we heard from today. We also heard from Michael Sabia, who's the, the Deputy uh, Minister of Finance. What did he have to share with the commission? Well, interesting testimony. He basically expressed a lot of the concerns and a lot of the calculations that had been done at the Finance Department about the cost of this occupation well, especially the blockades, and especially the blockade at uh, Windsor and Detroit, the Ambassador Bridge. I uh, talked about the potential economic uh, harm, but then he was more insistent, too, on the reputational harm that it could be causing Canada. And remember, we heard at that time uh, politicians saying that they were hearing from Washington, they were hearing from the governor of Michigan, and they were hearing from the automobile industry about real questions about the future viability and reliability of cross-border trade uh, faced with a, this kind of disruption in the, in the trade. He was also quite question, Michael, about uh, the whole issue uh, of financial, of seizing of assets of protesters. And he was uh, challenged on that, whether that was necessary. Uh, he was challenged by a lot of the, the council from the uh, Civil Liberties Association and the, uh, and the protesters. Okay, Martin, thank you for that. Really appreciate it. CPAC's Martin Stringer following this story for us. And a reminder, we do have continuing coverage of the Public Order Emergency Commission for you right here on CPAC. You can also tune into our live stream of each day's testimony that's on our website, cpac.ca. And it is also on our website where you will find the full proceedings. That's where we will archive them and make them available for you whenever you like. Well, there continues to be fallout after that brief exchange between the Prime Minister and China's President Xi Jinping admonishing Trudeau in full view of the press for sharing details of a conversation the two had during the G20 in Indonesia. Everything we discuss is then leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. Now, observers and those with more intimate knowledge say the exchange demonstrates how poor Canada-China relations are at this moment, and perhaps more troubling, the disdain with which Xi Jinping views Prime Minister Trudeau. For their thoughts on the matter, we're now joined by our strategist panel. Susan Smith is the principal of the Blue Sky Strategy Group. Tim Powers is the chairman of Summa Strategies, and Anne McGrath is the national director for the NDP. Hello to the three of you. 
Hi, Hello. Uh, Susan, I'm going to get you to start us out. Given the scolding the Prime Minister got, was it actually smart for him to share the details of the conversation or just ill-advised? So there's a term that many Canadians will be familiar with and many people who have democratic governments around the world, it's called readout. And that means that there's a, there's a reporting, a summary of what happened in conversations. And that's precisely what the Trudeau government did. We, you know, as a transparent democratic company country, he had a conversation with a, a leader and he shared details of that conversation. I think it's perfectly within the realm and the expectations of Canadians for that kind of information to be shared. President Xi, on the other hand, does not come from a free and democratic country. He didn't do the readout first. So I think what you saw was petulance on the part of President Xi. I don't think Canadians should read into it overly. If anything, I think if they care at all, I think they'll care that the, the prime minister did what's right, what's very Canadian. He was polite in the face of um, President Xi's bad manners. And uh, I think it's fine. We have lots of trading partners in the world, uh, a minor blip in the grand scheme of things, so I'm, I'm not worried about it at all. Uh, Tim, what's your take? Because, you know, the Prime Minister was under pressure to address potentially illegal activities that China has been committing in this country. That includes these so-called uh, Chinese police stations on Canadian soil, the allegations of the Chinese Communist Party interfering in elections here in Canada. All of that in the readout. What's your take on whether or not the Prime Minister should have shared the details? I think this is so frigging overblown, uh, and, and that may surprise you to hear that. Uh, Justin Trudeau and I have one thing in common. We both used to be bouncers at nightclubs, and uh, he did his best bouncing then, Michael, by not get, being intimidated, by not being thrown off by Xi Ping. I mean, that is such a staged act of intimidation. What was he supposed to do? Grab the Chinese leader by the lapels and shake him and say, you talk more nicely to me? Uh, Trudeau has a lot to answer for, yes, when it relates to Canada's position with China and what happened with the two Michaels, what's actually going on now. But I tell you what, I thought he did fine with this the other day. It was clearly staged. And there's something to be said when the, you know, one of the most powerful nations in the world feels it comes over and needs to come over and scold you. And maybe you are irritating them to a degree that that's pleasing. So I think this is just so overblown. I think he handled it the right way. And uh, short of shaking him by the lapels, I don't know what people expected him to do. Oh, okay, you think it's overblown, but you know, Anne, I guess the question is whether the Prime Minister could have raised the issue with Xi uh, without sharing details with the press. What do you make of the decision? Well, first of all, there are a lot of really critical issues between China and Canada right now. I mean, you know, my colleagues here mentioned the two Michaels. I think that these reports about interference in elections are very concerning. And I think, uh, you know, we really need to find out what's going on there. And of course, there are discussions right now about how we trade, where we trade, with whom we trade, all of those kinds of things. So really, really critical issues there. I would agree that I think that this particular incident is is overblown. Um, I think that uh, uh, you know Susan and Tim are right that that it is very common for there to be a re what's called a readout uh, after a meeting. Um, they're very uh, they're pretty unexciting. Most of them uh, they're about like less than half a page, and it just says usually says the two leaders met and these are the things that they talked about and they agreed to continue talking. That's basically what a readout does. And uh, so I, I don't see anything unusual or dramatic about the readout having been done. That is not leaking things to the press. It is a readout of a meeting. 
um, the the incident between the the, the two leaders uh, at, at the event, I think, um, you know, was caught caught on microphone and, and so forth. But I didn't think anything particularly dramatic happened at it, uh, uh, really. But I do think that Canada has a lot of work to do in terms of um, uh, developing a more, I believe, a more sophisticated relationship with China. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that would help for sure would be, uh, I think, if we had an ambassador. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which which has been named, uh, but you know, let's let's talk about though that part of the the admonishment, I guess, that the Canadian press says wasn't translated, and that's the part that she uh, apparently warns that if conversations were not respectful, then there could uh, be unpredictable results. Now, the Trudeau government is expected to release a new Indo-Pacific strategy. Do you think that comment is a bit of a shot across the bow? Uh, and I guess picking up on your point earlier, Susan, doesn't even does it even matter? Yeah. It, um, no, look, President Xi was posturing. Uh, you can sure bet that he doesn't walk places where there are cameras present unless he completely wants to to uh, send a message to the folks back home. I Like I said, I don't think Canadians are terribly fussed by and probably happy with how Pre uh, Prime Minister Trudeau handled it with President Xi. Um, we are waiting for an Indo-Pacific strategy. We've been waiting a while. For one, we need one. But there's a reason we need one and we will have one is because there are other democratic rules-based trading nations in the world. Um, the biggest one is about to be India and we as a country continue to be a trading nation. We've had signals from our, our Deputy Prime Minister, we've had signals from our Foreign Affairs Minister that our preference is to do business with countries uh, who we can trust, who follow the rules-based order and uh, where we can grow uh, successfully and uh, grow our business with them, grow our trade with them, and and grow our relationships with them. So I think it's a signal that there's a pivot coming. In terms of whether President, uh, you know, President uh, Xi thinks things need to be polite, I would remind everybody, and it drives me crazy every time I see it. We frequently have Chinese ambassadors who are guests to Canada coming on national news or giving news conferences where they're exceptionally critical of the Canadian government on our home soil. So from a manners-based approach, I don't think the Canadians need any lessons from the Chinese. From a trade-based approach, I think it's only prudent that as a country, we are constantly um, refreshing our trade uh, and our, our global relations perspective uh, on a prudent and a prudent basis that looks forward. And certainly um, a new Indo-Pacific strategy will be well-timed and definitely needed and a signal of things to come. Tim? Uh, look, yeah, I, I, there's so much said about the strategy. My bigger concern out of all of this, and, and it's not so much the, the Xi incident. As I said, I actually think the Prime Minister handled that as well as he could, uh, apart from physically throttling him, which was never an option, Michael. Um, but it, it is... You know where does where does this leave Canada and the lack of co clear policy at the moment with our Five Eyes allies? Because I think there is a criticism there, and I think it's legitimate. Um, the Prime Minister, in his early days before he became Prime Minister, as you know, spoke with a bit more fondness about China. Uh, he's not in some quarters being seen as aggressive with China. Maybe we are behind the scenes, and we don't know. Our bigger concern ought to be with our allies and less the Chinese, our key five ally, the, the Five Eyes. How are the Five Eyes viewing the Canadian relationship with China? Do they view us as being in the court of the Five Eyes or still a little 
too much in terms of our uncertainty with the relationship with China. That's what I'm more concerned about, not about how China views us, but our allies. China is always going to do what is best for China first. That has been their history. We should not expect any departure from it. Canada should take a similar approach, but in concert with its allies. And uh, final word to you. So she is obviously in a, a pretty strengthened position domestically coming out of the coming out of the Congress, and in all likelihood is sort of feeling a little bit of uh, wind in his sails, uh, and, and took the opportunity to try and um, try and put uh, the Prime Minister of Canada in his place, and I think it failed. Um, so uh, you know, as others have said here, I think that what we should be doing is focusing. We, we need to figure out what our relationship with China is. We need to be very strong on the issues of foreign in interference, for sure. Um, and we need to look at uh, who are the other partners in the region uh, that we can develop stronger relationships with, places like India, Japan, etc. Okay, well, that is all the time that we actually have. But thank you to the three of you for joining us uh, this week once again. Susan Smith, Tim Powers, and Anne McGrath. Good to see you three. Good to see you, Michael. Thank, thank you. you. COP27, the UN Conference on Climate Change, comes to an end this weekend in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. It's a conference that was not without its struggles and disagreements as nearly 200 countries came together for an annual meeting focused on the challenges of rising temperatures and their impacts around the world. Now, for Canada, it was this country's chance to recommit to the government's own stated goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2050 and urging other countries to adopt policies like the carbon tax that's been implemented here in Canada. Well, we're now joined by the Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gilbeau. He joins us from the site of the COP27 conference in Egypt. Minister, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. Going into this, you are urging other countries to adopt carbon pricing the way Canada has, uh, really as a means of addressing climate change. But I also think it's fair to say that there are many Canadians who are still not convinced that carbon pricing works. Uh, their bills are going up, but Canadians are still using gas to get around, uh, to heat their homes. Uh, carbon is a byproduct of agricultural production. What do you say to Canadians who are still doubtful, if not resentful, about carbon pricing? Well, the first thing is that um, carbon pricing is known to be one, if not the most effective measures to fight climate pollution. And, 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 and we know that climate change is impacting Canadians more and more. And it, it's, as we've seen with Fiona, for example, in Atlantic Canada, it's costing lives uh, and it's costing Canadians billions of dollars every year. And, and, and one of the things that uh, on the international scene here in Charmel Shape, one of, one of the features of the, of the Canadian pricing system, the uh, carbon pricing system that, that, that is attracting a lot of attention is the fact that we, we recycle 90% of the revenues from the system back to, 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 to Canadians. And, and those Canadians get more money back from the federal government than what it's costing them for, for, for the pricing system. So they're better off with it than without it. Uh, and, and for countries, I've been talking, for example, to, uh, to, to, to a country like Colombia or Chile uh, or even the, the Brazilian transition government, the, the, the new Lula government, who really like this idea of, of, of using people who have more money, which is what we're doing in, in Canada. People who have more money are basically supporting the, the, the people in the middle class and, and lower income Canadians 
through this system because the richest among us don't receive money back from the federal government because they can afford to, 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 to take the impact of, uh, of pricing. So, and, and that's, I was on stage with, with, with the Environment Minister of Chile, for example, when we launched that, 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 that carbon pricing challenge. And, and she said that, you know, that's, that, that's one of the very interesting elements of, of what Canada's doing on on pricing, uh, on pricing pollution. And, and yet there is, uh, as you probably know, a Leger poll out now. It was conducted online, but it states that 77% of people surveyed want a freeze on the current carbon price as a response to inflation. What does that tell you about the public support for the policy here in Canada when measured against more bread and butter issues like food, housing, and heating that people are having to pay for? I'm, I'm sorry. I, uh, being in Egypt, I haven't seen uh, that that poll, so I, I can't comment on it. Um, but uh, we've we've fought the last three federal elections, where pricing pollution was not the only issue on, on the ballot box, but clearly one of the issues on 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 on, on the ballot box. Um, and 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 as Canadians um, start four times a year receiving checks from the federal government to help them face face the impact. Of, uh, of inflation while fighting pollution at the same time. Because I think if we were to do a poll asking Canadians, do you think Canada should be doing its part to fight climate change? Do you think you would like to do your part to fight climate change? I suspect that the, the level of support for something like that would also be very high. Mm -hmm. Now, there, there does uh, continue to be about criticism when it comes back to COP27, criticism for the number of oil and gas companies who are present at the conference, reportedly over 600 representatives, many of them going as part of the official Canadian delegation. What do you say to the criticism of the presence of those companies? Canada is an open and democratic society. Uh, we, we do have two representatives of oil and gas sector on the Canadian delegation, but we have youth on, on the Canadian delegation. We have Indigenous youth. We have Indigenous leaders. We have trade union leaders. We have environmental organizations. In a society like ours, I think, you know, it's a very slippery slope when the government starts saying, well, it's okay for you to come, but it's not okay for you. We're, we're, we're democratic and, and open or we're not. That being said, uh, the oil and gas sector has an important role to play, a key role to play in reducing carbon pollution in Canada. And, and, and I must, and I've said so publicly recently, I'm a bit disappointed by what I'm seeing right now in terms of their level of investment in the transition. They've, they've sent billions of dollars to their shareholders. They have the right to do that. But I'm, I'm, I, what I would like to see from them is investment to ensure that this industry has a future in a world where we will be consuming less and less oil, that those workers and those communities that depend on, on, on the oil and gas sector have a future. And we're putting our money where our mouth is. We've offered subsidies, tax breaks to help these companies make important investment. So I'm, I'm very eager to see them come to the table and, 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 and really work with us to, to help reduce pollution in Canada. Well, in addition to that, or to that in general, your government will be placing an emissions uh, cap on oil and gas sometime next That's year. That's correct. Uh, but as you know, environmental groups want that regulation, that cap to come out sooner. You've been on that side of the issue with Equitaire. Why not move sooner on putting a cap on oil and gas? I, frankly, I, I think this, this request from environmental organization is, is unreasonable, and, and they know that. They know that in a country like ours, when we want to adopt new laws or new regulations, 
we have to do consultations with provinces and territories. We have a, a constitutional duty to do that, as well as with ind indigenous people. We, but, but, but we also are happy to receive advice from environmental organizations, from experts, and from companies. And, and, and it takes time to do that. The last, the last piece of regulation that we published, Environment Canada, this year, took five years to develop. And, 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 and for me, that's too long. The commitment that I've made to environmental groups, to Canadians, to companies, is that going forward, the new piece of regulations that we will develop in Canada, we, our aim is to do that in two years, to cut in, to cut in half the time it takes but we can't do that overnight. Um, in a society like ours, people have, have a right to express their views and, and in some cases a constitutional right. And, and we, need to, we need to proceed in a very lawful manner and that's what we're doing in, in Canada. Okay, I appreciate what you're saying about consultation, but the goal as stated by your own government is to get to net zero within the next 30 years. But the latest climate change performance index that came out at this COP it has Canada ranked fifth from the bottom, not far from uh, Kazakhstan, not far from Saudi Arabia. So how can you maintain that target if Canada, as compared to the rest of the world, is under-delivering? Well, I mean, one of the issues is that not much was done in terms of fighting climate change in Canada for a very long time. And, and we are playing catch-up, and I'm, I'm, I'm the first one to recognize it. Um, and, and many of the things that we're doing will take time. So we're investing $30 billion in transit. So they are right now 300 transit projects under construction in, 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 in the country. Now, you can't, like, like it's being done in Toronto, you can't construct a new subway line overnight. It's going to take a few years. There's a new light train uh, system being built in, in Montreal. It's going to come online next year. Um, same thing with, with electrification of, of our transportation system. We've announced, the federal government has announced 10 different deals worth $15 billion to transform Canada's auto sector to, to, to produce electric vehicles, to produce battery components for electric vehicles, to produce batteries. This is, this is happening now. So I, 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 I'm the first one to recognize we need to do more and, and we need to do it faster, but it's starting to happen in Canada. But we won't change our society overnight. It will take many years to, to, to get there. But you think we can still meet the goal by 2050? Oh, absolutely. Minister Guibault, thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much, Michael. Take care. You too. And that is our program for tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow.